ask her to you know pick out the I ask her to pick out the songs. I don't really tell her what to sing. Um, but that song in particular, I just always want to sing at the top of my lungs. And that's why it's good for me to sit in the front row. <laughs> so whoever sit behind me might not enjoy it as much as I do. Well, let's go ahead and, uh, and we'll pray to start off before we get in the Word. Uh, Father God, we're just so grateful that we have the opportunity to come before you, to gather as your people and praise your name. Lord, to bring you glory. And I just pray as we open up your word today that you would speak to each and every one of us, that your word would sink down deep um, and change our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Recap of last week, real quick. We talked about a spiritual truth that is also present in the natural world. And so uh, Christians and non-Christians both can agree that whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. Right? That's what you're going to harvest. You're never going to plant corn and harvest wheat, ever. It's not going to happen. But if we sow seeds to the flesh, we're going to reap what? Corruption. This is audience participation. Okay. <laughs> we're going to reap corruption. Right. We talked about Samson. Right. Samson was chosen by God, but he chose to sow seeds to the flesh, and eventually it led to his demise. But if we sow seeds to the Spirit, we're going to reap eternal life, right? And not just eternal life, that's the beauty of it. If we uh, plant seeds to the Spirit, we're also going to live in the overcoming victorious life that Jesus promises if we abide in Him and we bear good fruit and we plant good seed. I titled uh, this Sunday's message, Boasting in the Cross. Uh, how Christ satisfies our glory hunger. Um, and there at the end of that song, it says, yours is the kingdom and yours is the glory. And uh, I love that because we have a temptation uh, to want to glory in ourselves or to glory in other people, when in reality, he's the only one that deserves glory. Um, there was some speculation that a lot of Bible scholars believe that uh, Satan was actually uh, a worship leader in heaven. He was the one that was leading everybody in worship. And so, at some point, he's sitting there leading everybody in the ultimate worship service, and he decides, wait a minute, he's getting all the glory. Like, I should be getting some of the glory. You know, I'm the one leading this thing. And pride crept in, that original sin, which is what caused the rebellion. And so, at times, there's a rebellion in our heart uh, to want to boast in ourselves and have the glory for ourselves. Um, and that's really what... Paul is trying to convey throughout this whole letter is, guys, it's not about you, right? It's about God. It's not the works that you can do. It's not about your religiosity. It's about what Jesus has done on the cross. And if we put our faith in him, then we're going to live in the grace that he provides. In 1937, 1937, the Golden Gate Bridge was completed uh, at a cost of $77 million. In, in those days, dollars, $77 million. Um, one of the biggest projects ever taken. And it was built in two phases. The first phase went really, really slow, and the second phase went really quickly. Um, in the first phase, 23 men fell to their death as they were working on the bridge. And so the work kind of ground to a halt as everybody was really paralyzed with fear, um, as they probably should have been crawling around on this bridge and watching some of their companions fall uh, to their death. And then one day, somebody had an ingenious idea. They said, you know what we need is a huge net. 
That's what we need. Uh, sometimes common sense ideas, you know, are the best. Uh, but they, at a cost of $100,000, they built the biggest net that anybody had ever made. And they put it underneath the bridge. And so when they started phase two, 10 men, 10 more guys fell, but they all were caught in the net. And so the second phase proceeded 25% faster than the first part did. And that security, right, that security, that knowledge that they were going to be okay if they fell off gave them a tremendous amount of freedom. And since security brings freedom, when we put our faith, we put our hope, our trust in Jesus, we have this security that the favor of God is on us now. And our eternal destination is secure. It gives us an amazing amount of freedom. It's no longer about us. We're not the ones that get the glory. God's the one that gets the glory. Okay, our final passage in Galatians. Galatians 6. We're going to start in verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit, brothers. Amen. What will we be like as Christians 10 years from now? For some of us, for most of us, uh, we'll be serving Jesus in some capacity around the world. Um, but for some of us, it will be a tragedy because at some point, um, we have lost our love and zeal for the Lord. Not necessarily because we wanted to or not because we set our heart in rebellion against God, but simply we set our lives by the world's agenda. And when we set our life by the world's agenda, then Jesus and his great commission starts to slowly fade. Um, that was actually Billy Graham. I didn't say that. <laughs> Billy Graham would say that towards the end of his messages from time to time, and he would speak. Um, and as he was wrapping up his evangel, you know, evangelistic message, he would say that uh, to try to draw people back into the reality that if we just simply go with the flow, that's going to take us farther away from our Savior. Uh, Paul is signing off his letter in a very serious form. He's finishing with a flourish. He says, see with what large letters I am writing to you. Paul was the original all caps texter. <laughs> Does anybody get all caps texts, emails? I get them at work from time to time. I get these all caps emails. And I'm, I'm like, do you realize that you're yelling at me right now? That's what it looks like that you're yelling at me right now. And so I have to pick up the phone and just make sure that they're okay. And then everybody, you know, catch their breath and uh, everything's all right. But the Galatians couldn't pick up the phone and call Paul, and Paul couldn't pick up the phone and call them. So to stress his point and say, listen, this is how serious I am. Time is of the essence. I'm writing to you with big letters. Um, the legalists that have shown up, um, that's exactly what they are. They're all show and no go. Um, it's hypocrisy 101. These guys want to force this circumcision on you 
Um, and they're only doing it to make themselves look good. They're not doing it because they care about you. They're only doing it because they want to make you a convert. Notice how it says, force you. Right? Religion is good at demanding things. Right? Um, and, and taking things. Whereas love, love is giving. Right? And love demands a choice. Um, you know, if I was the only man on the planet, and Alicia came to me and she said, I want to marry you. I'd be happy about it, but I would always wonder, does she really love me or is it just because there aren't any other options? You know? <laughs> so love demands a choice. We have to have a choice. Um, that word forced in the King James, they use the word constraint, and it comes with it the implication that somebody is putting the hard sell on you. They're doing the hard sell. Um, yes, you guys have Jesus, but if you really want to be spiritual, you got to be Jewish too. And I think we've all been in a situation where somebody has been putting the hard sell on us and you want to get out of there as fast as possible. Uh, nobody enjoys that. Um, for God so loved that he gave, right? He so loved the world that he gave his son. <coughs> Legalism forces ideas and rituals on people. And they're not doing it because they care. They just want to look more spiritual. And they were doing it to try to avoid persecution. Persecution of the cross. Um, that is the truth. It finally comes out. The, the little dirty secret that they don't want to be persecuted for the cross. Um, they're afraid of persecution, so they become the ones doing the persecuting, basically. Um, what they're doing, you know, when we ask ourselves, what motivates our service for the Lord? Uh, is it so that we can be seen? before other people so that we can get some of the glory? Or is it so our weaknesses can be seen so that God can be made much of as he works through us? Um, John Calvin said that for us, as for these Judaizers, a dread of the cross leads one to corrupt the true preaching of the cross. If we're scared of the cross, then it's going to lead us to corrupt a true preaching of it. Um, they were afraid to stand up for what was scandalous in their day, and that was this, that the cross, that Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection removed distinctions between people in the body of Christ. There's no longer male or female, there's no longer Jew or Greek. It removed the distinctions, and that was scandalous in those days. In today's day, the scandal is that the distinctive works of Jesus on the cross mean there's only one way to be reconciled to God. Just one way. And that narrow view is scandalous in our day. But let us be those that are willing to suffer for that scandalous truth. Amen? Amen. Uh, I can't help but wonder if this fear of persecution in some form has crept into the church today. I said it last week that here in America we don't really experience persecution. Not really. Uh, although we're kind of getting as close as we've ever been. Um, but as I read this verse and as I was thinking about it, that these guys were... Scared of being persecuted for the cross of Christ, um, they were trying to find some middle ground, basically, right? Like, okay, that's fine if you guys believe in Jesus, okay, but you need to widen your tent a little bit to include Judaism. I mean, we're widening our tent, you know, we're saying oh, Jesus is okay, so if we compromise and you guys compromise, then we'll find some middle ground and you guys get what we want and, uh, and vice versa. And then there's some compromises that come along with it. Um, and I wonder today if that is the reason why the gospel message in America has become watered down. Because people are afraid 
of being persecuted for being too narrow. The message of the cross is clear. Mm -hmm. Jesus is the way, Amen. the truth, and the life. Yes. The Bible is very clear. It is the word of God, and it means what it says. Right. Right. Yeah. It means what it says. Mm -hmm. But in wanting to avoid persecution, <clears throat> right, for being too narrow, and under the guise of wanting to be as inclusive as possible, the message gets changed. The message gets changed to try to include as many people as possible. And so they start to engage in road work, right? Road construction. Uh, the path is narrow that leads to life. And they're trying to widen the path, uh, so to speak. And so um, is the heart for people or are they simply trying to protect their own reputations? I wonder at times because Jesus said, if you follow my way, there's going to be trouble. People aren't going to like it. Um, you know, there's a real danger in wanting to be relevant today to the culture. And so when we decide we want the message of the Bible or of Jesus to be relevant, then we start to change it. We start to twist it um, to get more people to buy in. And they're not necessarily in today's day, they're not trying to force a false gospel on people, but they are changing the message to make themselves look better and uh, so they won't be singled out. Right. It's easy to deliver a message that everybody wants to hear. Right. Right. right? But to hear the truth, the narrow way, yes. that could be scandal sometimes. It could get you in trouble. Sin has to be called sin. That's right. And we have to steer people towards holiness. Mm -hmm. Yes, God is love. And yes, his mercies are new every morning. Mm -hmm. For the believer who puts themselves under his lordship yes. and submission to him. Right. His love is is enduring, it lasts forever, and His mercies are new every morning. Um, but if you choose to reject God, if you choose to reject His truth, um, that is no longer the case. Uh, people are fond of saying, life is short, you know, live it up. Um, we, uh, from time to time, don't listen Mark. From time to time, we've gone to Caribou Coffee, and they have, they, I know, they have, I have to speak the truth, Mark. <laughs> I have to be honest. And so they have a slogan that says, life is short, stay awake for it. The reason why we drink so much coffee, we're just trying to stay awake for it. But as believers, we should add to that, eternity is long, prepare for it. Yes. Right? right? That needs to be first and foremost, even if it means persecution. In John 15, Jesus is talking to his disciples about this very thing, about how if we get too close to the world, we're not going to be on the right side. So it's John 15, verse 18 through 25. It said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And then in James 4, our good buddy James, James 4, 4, he says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Don't order your life according to the world's agenda. That's only going to lead to, and I think it's, I think it's interesting, um, it's the, the, the dichotomy of the gospel message, because the same gospel that draws the sinner, right, that shows people that they are broken, that they're in need of a Savior, that same gospel is rejected 
by prideful people that reject the notion that there is only one way to God. That same gospel does the same thing. It's, it's interesting. They say, I want to find my own way. In 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul is right out of the gate here. 1 Corinthians 1. 1.18. says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's the power of God. We're headed into the most significant week of the year for us as Christians. And it's a, it's a season where we're not just looking at crosses um, that we see around town as just a symbol, but we start looking at it more uh, as what it is, as this instrument of pain and death. It's something that Jesus willingly embraced. And it's kind of morbid if you think about it. I mean, if somebody walked in and they had a necklace on that had an electric chair on it, we would, we would probably start asking questions on that one. And sometimes it seems like Paul has kind of a fixation with death. He talks about it a lot, but he's telling us something that we really already know, and that's that uh, we are dead, that our flesh is corrupted and it only wants to feed itself. Um, but as Jesus followers, we know that it is the most incredible, extravagant act of love that the world has ever seen. We'll talk more about it next week, but uh, Jesus was a lamb. There's no glory in being a lamb, right? Uh, he was the lamb of God. And I was trying to do some research this week and find out during Passover how many lambs were actually slaughtered. It was kind of hard to find, pin down like an exact number, but one that I found uh, hinted at 20,000 lambs would have been slaughtered on that day in Jerusalem. 20,000. And Jesus would have been walking through Jerusalem, listening to all of those lambs, all of those spotless lambs, you know, making noise. And he would have been thinking about, I am the ultimate lamb. I am the lamb. And just how bloody and how gruesome it was on that day um, that Jesus was heading into. And he did it willingly. So he was doing it um, <laughs> very humbly, right? He wasn't seeking glory. He was going to be glorified, but he wasn't seeking glory in himself. He was seeking to glorify the Father. But these legalists' desire was carnal. They wanted glory in themselves. They were the center, not Jesus. Um, they wanted the human praise and approval that sometimes we all crave that leads us in the wrong direction. We're, we're at an interesting time right now because... Access to the gospel message has never been greater, but acceptance of the gospel message, at least in America, has never been lower. Um, because what do we value here in America? We value entertainment. Uh, we value entertainers. And we put them up on pedestals. And this happens in the church, too. Uh, unfortunately, we put people up on pedestals. And when they fall off, uh, people in the world cry heresy, right? Or heretic or hypocrisy. Uh, to which I say, yes, that's why we're all here, <clears throat> right? That's why we're all here. We're all in need of a Savior. But the legalists were hypocrites in one of the worst ways because um, they were selfish, they wanted the glory, but they were also afraid of the persecution and they were leading people straight. They were doing all of these things at once. They wanted to be seen as more spiritual, um, but they didn't want to suffer for it. And then they were also leading people down a false path. They weren't believers in Jesus. Um, basically, they were self-promoters. And we need to be careful, wary of others that are self 
promoters. That's what these legalists were. In Matthew 6, Jesus is delivering his sermon on the mount, and uh, he is telling people to beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And he says, don't give and don't pray the way these hypocrites do. See, because the Pharisees would be on their way to the temple, and they would stop on the street corners and just start praying. God, thank you that you have not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That's what they would pray, right? They were just, they were so zealous to get to the temple that they had to just stop and pray on the corner because they couldn't wait. Or, when they were going to give, they would be on their way. They were supposed to give at the temple, right? Give to the temple. They would take care of the poor. But they would stop on the street corner. And he says, don't sound your trumpet before you. They would literally carry little trumpets. So instead of giving at the temple, they would stop on the street corner, pick up their little trumpet. And that's when all of the people knew, ah, Pharisee's there. He's giving out money. We can go over there. They get all the glory because they're the ones handing out the money. That makes sense. They're being hypocritical. Um, so Jesus is telling his disciples about this. Beware of those people that just want to be seen by men that have no real heart for people, no hunger for God. Uh, David wrote in the Psalms, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. How could he write that? I mean, that seems like an odd thing to write. I mean, David, of all people. David wasn't, here's the key, David was not a self-promoter. David was a God promoter. And sometimes we read the story of David and we're like, this is the guy who was a man after God's own heart. I mean, some of the things he did were pretty terrible, right? But he had a heart for God above everything else. Um, you can hear it uh, when you read the Psalms, this agony between his sinful nature and the loving and forgiving God that we serve. Um, you know, you can feel his internal struggle uh, trying to live humbly before God because he was a God promoter. I was reading a book uh, here just a few weeks ago, and it was talking about David and how humble he was uh, and how these mighty men that, you know, that, he served, that ended up surrounding him, he didn't even necessarily call them. They just flocked to him. Uh, and what he must have looked like to them, um, you know, a musician who cried a lot. Um, but who led them into battle, you know? Um, he was a God promoter. He wasn't a self-promoter. Jesus wasn't even a self-promoter. If anybody could have been a self-promoter, it would have been Jesus. In John 9, um, we see the story of Jesus who heals a blind man who had been blind since birth. And the disciples walk past him, and they see him, and they said, you know, Rabbi, who sinned that this guy was born blind? Was it him or his parents? Which is kind of a weird question since he was born blind. Um, but was it him? I guess maybe a sin nature, or was it his parents? And Jesus said it was neither of those. It was so the works of God could be displayed in his life. And I'll say something that is a little controversial, um, because it's not popular in, I guess, what you would call the you know word of faith movement. And that is, you know, God doesn't want you to be sick. He doesn't want you to be sick. Um, he wants you to be healed. So all you need to do is just believe it and receive it. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's true. Um, in Exodus chapter 4, we see, we see God talking to Moses. And he is calling Moses up. And he says, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh to deliver my people. And you're going to be my mouthpiece. And Moses starts to freak out. And he's like, listen, God, I don't talk very well. 
Like, I stutter. I'm not going to be a good mouthpiece for you. Can't you have somebody else do it? And God says this in uh, chapter 4, verse 11. He says, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Why would God make somebody that way? Why would he do that? That seems cruel. Well, it's so he can be on display. So his glory can be on display. Um, that's why self-promotion is so evil. It really is. Inside the church, it's so evil because it's all about Jesus. He was born blind so that God could be on display. So he puts mud on this guy's eyes and he tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. So the guy takes off and he's healed as he washes it off. And the people are having a hard time believing if this is actually a miracle or not. So they drag this guy up to the Pharisees and tell him about this miracle. And they start peppering him with questions, right? To the point where they even bring his parents in and say, is this really your son? And uh, they're like, well, look, you know, he's an adult. Ask him. <laughs> Don't bother us. And they start asking him about Jesus. And they're like, listen, give glory to God. We know that this guy is a sinner. And he basically says, listen, I, all I know is that I used to be blind and now I see. And it ticked the Pharisees off because they couldn't figure it out. So they end up casting this guy out. And it says, um, so this is John 9, this is 30, verse 35. Let's see if I can look at it real quick. John 9, 35. It says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus isn't a self-promoter. He's a self-revealer. He could have promoted himself to the masses. He could have done that, but he didn't. He revealed himself to the man after he went and found him. He opened up his eyes, he sought him, he found him, and then he revealed himself to him. Often it can be those that are uh, making such a big show of religion that can be farthest from the truth. And it really is sad because um, it's a form of self-deception and we can see it um, you know, from time to time. And it really is sad because they look the part, right? Uh, they have a Bible. They go to church. Um, they said a prayer at one point in time. And they have deceived themselves. They might even be able to talk about theological issues. Um, but they don't have a heart for God. They don't have a relationship. Um, it's all about what God can do for them, not what he has done for them. Um, you know, the realization that if God never did another thing for us the rest of our lives... What he did for us would already be enough yes. because he made a way for us to be with him again, Amen. to forgive our sins. And that's a tough one for me to chew on from time to time, I'll be honest, um, because we do fall into that trap of God, you know, I'm going through this thing. Don't you see me? Please help. Um, and he does. Mm -hmm. And he does. But even if he didn't, yes. it would be enough. Yes. Paul wrote to Timothy in his last letter, 2 Timothy, um, he wrote in his last letter, as he was getting ready to be executed, he knew that his time was short. 2 Timothy 3. 
He's writing about the godlessness that will be prevalent in the last days as people are seeking glory for themselves and not for God. It says, but understand this, that in the last days there will be times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. That's quite the list. Uh, but he ends with having the appearance of godliness but not having any power. What is the power? Right? The power of God is a transformed life, a new creation. If we are abiding in him, and the Spirit is producing fruit in us, and we're planting good seed. We are a different person. We're a new creation. That is the power of God. Um, Paul states, evil people are known for putting window dressing on their lives, right? The window dressing of God on their lives. Um, but they reject the actual power of the Holy Spirit that's supposed to be working inside of them. Um, they want to be seen as very spiritual, maybe even teachers, right? But they are rejecting the move of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Um, these are basically what we would call people that have pr profession without possession. <laughs> they have a profession of faith, but they don't have a possession of the Holy Spirit, of a relationship with God. Uh, they don't have a legitimate relationship built on truth. This would also include people that overtly pick and choose which verses in the Bible they want to believe, which ones they want to apply to their life, and which ones they want to kind of dismiss or explain away. One thing to be cognizant of, too, as we look at people, um, and if they have simply an appearance of godliness, a form of godliness, but do they have power, is are those disciples of those people being in, turned into disciples of the speaker or of Jesus? Right? Where is the glory going? Um, because if the glory is going to the person, then we can kind of see that maybe the spirit isn't moving in that person. Uh, in the church in Corinth, Paul is writing, uh, and there are some arrogant people that have moved into the church. And Paul says this, he says, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I'll find out not the talk of these people, of these arrogant men, but of their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Right. These guys are a lot of talk. And when I get there, we'll find out. <laughs> I would have liked to have seen that confrontation. <laughs> The power of a transformed life, transformed life as a result of the Holy Spirit working inside of us. Okay, back to Galatians. Chapter 6, verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. So these people that want to keep the law, they don't even do it perfectly. Uh, oh, and by the way, they're choosing which law they want to focus on. Always something that you can find in a legalist, too, is they have one or two points that are very important to them. They're going to ignore the rest. There were a lot of rules to keep. They focused on circumcision. This is the one that's important, um, as opposed to all of them. They arbitrarily select circumcision from the law. Um, progressive Christianity in America today is very good at picking and choosing which verses of the Bible apply to their lives. 
They kind of make the Bible fit into their lifestyle instead of the Bible dictating how we're supposed to live. Um, it says they want to boast in your flesh. They're only concerned with an outward show that they think is going to result in an inward holiness, but it doesn't. Um, an outward show which can't be kept up. Uh, you know, we were looking, we were doing some research this week, which was kind of unusual, on wound care. Uh, and if you have an open wound, you can't just slap a Band-Aid on it, right? It's going to get worse. It actually has to heal from the inside out. And it's a painful process. So to heal from the inside out, you have to scrape away the top layers as it heals from the inside out. And if we just try to take religion or rules and slap that on our lives, it's not going to change us from the inside out. We have to have the power of the Spirit to do that. Uh, Jeremiah, I'm going to go to the Old Testament. Jeremiah 9, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, he's talking about boasting and he says this, um, actually the Lord says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, and that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Paul says, if I'm going to boast in anything, it's going to be in my weaknesses mm -hmm. and in the cross that Jesus can be made much of. Yeah. Lord says to Jeremiah, boast in the fact that you know me. That's what you should boast in, that you have an understanding um, and a relationship. All right. Galatians 6.14, making our way through. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Uh, we talked, uh, talked about it a few weeks ago, but the Jews stumbled over the, the cross. Uh, they could not get past it. They were looking for a Messiah, and they could not understand how a Messiah would come and die on a cursed cross. They were looking for somebody to come free them uh, politically and militarily, and they just could not get past that. Past that. It wasn't going to be the case. And the Greeks, the Greeks despised it. Like, how in the world? You know, could that be somebody who saves? Uh, their gods were so impersonal and personal, and they would never stoop down to help any of them. They lived in fear of the gods that they served. But um, we owe all of our hopes, all of our desires, all of our dreams to the one who embraced the cross so that we could be free from it. Paul reckoned himself dead to the world. That, uh, he says it a couple places, but that word reckoned, um, isn't just a country boy term. Um, <laughs> it's actually an accounting term, right? Reconciliation. Um, in our world, in TV, you know, they, we have the logs of all of the commercials that are supposed to run, and so the day after they do what they call reconciliation, they match everything up. It's done. It can't be changed. It's finalized. He said, I have finalized in my mind that I am dead to the world. I am crucified to my flesh, and it to me. And again, <laughs> sounds like he has a little bit of a fixation with that, but he is just um, embracing the reality that um, the flesh is only going to destroy. It's corrupt. Um, oh, verse 15, almost there. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Um, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy will be upon them and upon the Israel of God. 
we have a tendency to think of our lives as a fixer-upper from time to time. Um, our lives need Home Depot. That's really all we need. Um, religion is viewed at as something as that can help us, right? Instead of a new creation, instead of knocking the whole thing down and starting over and having a new creation, um, and people that uh, want to try religion, once they figure out that it can't deliver what it promises, it can tell you how to live, but it doesn't give you the ability to carry it out. They become disillusioned, and they see religion as just a crutch, something that uh, won't work. But Paul's speaking here of a new creation, and also not just a new creation, but a new nation, right? A holy immigration. Right? This is the only immigration policy that really matters uh, if we are accepted into his kingdom. And Paul is giving these believers in Galatia uh, a promise and a prayer that those who live by that rule are going to have peace and mercy. They're going to have peace now because we have God's favor on our lives once we have accepted Jesus. But we also have a knowledge that we're going to find mercy when we walk into eternity. So we're going to have peace and mercy. What does Paul mean when he says Israel of God? That sounds kind of strange, the Israel of God. I mean, the Pharisees were uh, descendants of Abraham uh, genetically, right? And they were disciples of Moses religiously, but they missed the Messiah. And the whole book of Galatians, what he's been writing to these people about the whole time is, listen, if you put your faith in the promise, you are part of the family of God. You're adopted. You're sons. You are part of the Israel of God. Um, you know, it's a dangerous thing, like these, like these Judaizers, to, as I mentioned earlier, have a profession without a possession. Um, there are lots of people that say, yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, Jesus was a real person. Yeah. He might have even been the, you know, the son of God. I prayed a prayer when I was a kid. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that more next week. Um, but what's our motivation? You know, we need to make sure that we're not those that have a form of godliness, that are, you know, seeking glory in ourselves to be noticed by men. Paul wrote it at the very beginning of this book. Am I now seeking the favor of God or of man? Because if I was seeking the favor of man, I would not be preaching the cross. That's why I'm being persecuted. Okay, verse 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, who was a, a theologian and thinker, said, The very shame and suffering and persecution which these false teachers would escape the apostle declares, have stamped him with the true insignia of his office. The scars on his body left by the stripes and the stones speak of his loyalty to and fellowship with his master and render him independent of all human opinion and not to be troubled by any man. That'd be a nice thing to say. We are independent of the opinions of anyone else. Nobody else can trouble us. Paul says basically, I'm done with this. I'm done dealing with people who are only concerned with outward shows that they think are going to result in inward holiness. I carry some marks too, but not things that were done to me, but things that were put upon me because of my submission to Jesus Christ. I have these marks as a disciple. The men who are most fully persuaded of these truths, of the truths of the gospel, are those who are willing to suffer for it. Um, if you think about the disciples, the disciples all died brutal deaths. All of them except one, John. But John, John, they actually lowered into a cauldron of boiling oil, but he didn't die. 
They lo- I, we made fries the other day, and I brushed up against the fry daddy, and I screamed. <laughs> and they lowered him in, but he didn't die, and so they threw him out to the island of Patmos, where he met Jesus again and wrote the book of Revelation. But all of them died brutal deaths. And just think about it. If you were in that moment, and they were torturing you, or they were torturing your family, they were getting ready to kill you, if it wasn't real, wouldn't you say, wait a second, you got me, okay? Go into the garden, second bush on your right, that's where we hid the body. I mean, you wouldn't suffer through all that if it wasn't true. But they suffered all of it. John Piper said this, uh, he said, the gospel does not offer the sinner what the sinner wants naturally. You know, if you're serving Jesus, the prosperity gospel isn't going to suffer for Jesus. It's just not. And if we're serving Jesus because we think we're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, those are things that we want naturally. Like, I'm a sinner. I want to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. The gospel doesn't give us what we want. It gives us what we need, which is redemption and forgiveness. Last verse. 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Uh, the Paul, Paul ends this letter in much the same way that he began, with, uh, with grace. And this farewell message, actually, it's interesting because it actually embodies almost all of the tenets of this book. Uh, what's the opposite of legalism? You know, grace, what we've been talking about the whole time. I hope you remember that one. <laughs> there are times I would open, I'm like, what are we going to talk about this week? Oh, legalism and grace. Okay. What am I going to say this week? <clears throat> Make this interesting. Um, and then not only grace, but the type of grace that only comes from the one person that can, um, that can really bring it to us. Uh, and where does he bring that peace? He brings it to our spirit, man. Not to our flesh. Our flesh has to be crucified. Um, and then finally, drives home the point. We've been driving home this whole time. Is that we are in the family, right? We are adopted sons. We are now brothers. And then amen. Amen simply means yes, right? Uh, I read this week that the resurrection was God's amen to Jesus' final words on the cross that it is finished. I thought that was pretty cool. Heading into um, heading into Easter week. Um, the book of Galatians. It took us four months, four months, but I think we squeezed about as much as we could out of it. Um, we could have spent some more time. Uh, if you want to do some deeper study, uh, you know, go through the fruits of the Spirit. That's a place where we probably could have spent more time. Um, but hopefully by now, when people ask you, if they were to ask you, what is Galatians about? Um, you know, simply that we have been set free to live free, right? That's right. Uh, hopefully we'd be able to give a quick synopsis of that. Um, Next week is Resurrection Sunday. Uh, I would encourage all of us to be mindful this week uh, of the events that led up to Resurrection Sunday. I think all of us would benefit from some, some reflection. Um, I saw an interview this past week with a, a Canadian thinker by the name of Jordan Peterson. Is anybody familiar with Jordan Peterson um, outside of my crew? Okay, good. Well, uh, Jordan Peterson, like I mentioned, formerly he is a psychologist um, and he's a professor uh, in Canada. He is very well known, very popular right now with young adults and uh, he's in his upper 50s, but he has spent the majority of his career speaking to uh, topics like morality 
and right and wrong and social justice and evil in the world and religions and all that kind of stuff. He is not a Christian. Um, he has written books uh, that some of them are titled Beyond Order, Peacemaking, 12 Rules for Life, and Maps of Meaning. You kind of see a trend here. And when you talk about topics like social justice and morality, eventually you are going to run into the person of Jesus Christ. And then you have to ask the question, who was Jesus? And is he who he said he was? And so he was doing this podcast. I've chosen a brief, um, I don't know if that's on or not, but okay. I've chosen a brief snippet. It's only about three minutes long out of a, maybe a two-hour podcast. So uh, it's a little snippet, but he's talking about Christianity and again, he talks about this kind of stuff all the time, and I thought it was super interesting what he says. And I, I could read it, but the emotion, I think, is worth seeing. Go ahead. This particular critic that I've been reading said, well, that, that doesn't differentiate Christ much from a whole sequence of dying and resurrecting mythological gods. And of course, people have made that claim in comparative religion, Joseph Campbell did that, and Jung to a lesser degree, I would say, but Campbell did that. But the difference, and C.S. Lewis pointed this out as well, the difference between those mythological gods and Christ was that there's a, there's a representation of, there's a historical representation of his, of, of his existence as well. Now, you can debate whether or not that's genuine, you can debate about whether or not he actually lived and whether there's credible objective evidence for that, but it doesn't matter in some sense because this, well, it does, but there's a sense in which it doesn't matter because there's still a historical story. And so what you have in the figure of Christ is an actual person who actually lived plus a myth. And in some sense, Christ is the union of those two things. The problem is, is I probably believe that. But I don't know, okay. I don't, I'm amazed at my own belief, and I don't understand it. Like, because I've seen... Sometimes, the objective world and the narrative world touch... You know, that's union synchronicity. Yeah. And I've seen that many times in my own life. And so in some sense, I believe it's undeniable. You know, we have a narrative sense of the world. For me, that's been the world of morality. That's the world that tells us how to act. It's real. Like, we treat it like it's real. It's not the objective world. But the narrative and the objective world touch. And the ultimate example of that, in principle, is supposed to be Christ. But I don't know what to... And that seems to me oddly plausible. Yeah. But well, I still don't know what to make of it. It's too, partly because it's too terrifying a reality to fully believe. I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. If you believed in the story of Christ or if you believed that history and, and let's say, the narrative make meet, let's Both, say. I yeah. think. I think you, because when you believe that, you buy both those stories. You believe that yeah. the narrative and the objective can actually touch Basically, and so there's some big words here. I had to have Devin explain it to me. Because <laughs> he was so quite a bit. Um, but basically, objective world, everything that's real, right? Everything that we can touch, everything that we experience. But then we have the narrative, right? The things that we talk about, the ideals that we hold up, um, you know, and then 
when those two things touch, basically it's perfection. And how does that how does that happen? He says that ultimately that person you know is depicted as Christ. And somebody who's not a Christian, but obviously the Holy Spirit is tugging at him. And how incredible. We'd have a modern day C.S. Lewis if he got saved. That would be incredible. Um, and so we pray for that. And I hope his um, <coughs> intellect doesn't get in the way of that. But here you have somebody that's talking about that. And the thing that struck me is when he says it's too terrifying a reality to fully believe. I don't even know what you would do, what that would do to a person if they fully believed it. What we know, what happens to people who truly believe to it. They are prepared to suffer for it. Yes. And they could give a rip about glory. They don't care. They don't want glory for themselves. They want glory for God. And when we look at the cross, that satisfies the glory hunger right there. There's no longer any desire for glory when we look at what Jesus did on the cross. And so next week on Easter Sunday, uh, we're going to take a look at um, who do you say that I am? Right? People have all kinds of things to say about Jesus. And it's surprising look online and what people say about Jesus. And I thought it would be, uh, obviously it's the first Easter message, and so, you know, what do you say for first Easter message? They say that Easter message is like Super Bowls for pastors, I guess. I don't know. Uh, no pressure there. Uh, but, you know, who was the person of Jesus Christ, and who do people say that he was? And that is the ultimate question that all of us have to answer. You know, who is Jesus to us? And if we fully believe that, how does that change our lives, right? How should it change our lives from the inside out so that we can be those people that don't just have a form of godliness, but also have the power inside of us? Amen? Amen. Let's worship God.